David, again, gathered all the chosen men of Israel, 30,000. And David arose and went with all the people who were with him from Baal, Judah, to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name of the Lord of hosts, who sits enthroned on the cherubim. And they carried the ark of God on a new cart and brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. And Uzzah and Ahio, the sons of Abinadab, were driving the new cart with the ark of God. And Ahio went before the ark. And David and all the house of Israel were making merry before the Lord with songs and lyres and harps and tambourines and castanets and cymbals. And when they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah put out his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it, for the oxen stumbled. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah, and God struck him down there because of his error, and he died there beside the ark of God. And David was angry because the Lord had burst forth against Uzzah, and that place is called Perez Uzzah to this day. And David was afraid of the Lord that day. And he said, how can the ark of the Lord come to me? So David was not willing to take the ark of the Lord into the city of David. But David took it aside to the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite. And the ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite, three months. And the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and all his household. And it was told King David... The Lord has blessed the household of Obed-Edom and all that belongs to him because of the ark of God. So David went and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. And when those who bore the ark of the Lord had gone six steps, he sacrificed an ox and a fattened animal. And David danced before the Lord with all his might. And David was wearing a linen ephod. So David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting and with the sound of the horn. As the ark of the Lord came into the city of David, Michael, the daughter of Saul, looked out of the window and saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord. And she despised him in her heart. And they brought in the ark of the Lord and set it in its place inside the tent that David had pitched for it. And David offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. And when David had finished offering the burnt offerings and the peace offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord of hosts and distributed among all the people, the whole multitude of Israel, both men and women, a cake of bread, a portion of meat, and a cake of raisins to each one. Then all the people departed, each to his house. And David returned to bless his household. But Michael, the daughter of Saul, came out to meet David and said, How the king of Israel honored himself today uncovering himself before the eyes of his servants, female servants, as one of those vulgar fellows shamelessly uncovers himself. And David said to Michael, it was before the Lord who chose me above your father and above all his house to appoint me as prince over Israel, the people of the Lord, and I will make merry before the Lord. I will make myself yet more contemptible than this, and I will be abased in your eyes. But by the female servants of whom you have spoken, by them I shall be held in honor. And Michael, the daughter of Saul, had no child to the day of her death. This is the word of the Lord. Well, that's a striking story, isn't it? Literally a striking story. Uzzah gets struck down. A story striking because of its otherness. It's just weird. It doesn't make much sense. It has... It has shock value. 
The story's hard to swallow. It might even be offensive to some of you. And if it is, I want you to just, to just sit in that. Sit and simmer in the emotional disequilibrium that that story often brings with it. If you never encounter the Bible and leave thinking that's offensive <laughs> or that's crazy or that makes no sense to me, then the chances are you aren't really engaging the Bible. Um, why is this story in the Bible? Why cover it today? That's a question I asked myself this week a number of times and thought about skipping it. The story's here uh, to teach us many things, only a few of which we're going to get to today, but primarily to teach us that God is not like us. God is his own person. You know that? God is real. He's not a social construct. He's not a figment of our imaginations. He's not just a projection of the things we love most about ourselves and our society. He is different. God is so utterly holy, so transcendent, and so majestic that we really struggle to comprehend it. And yet, this story also teaches that that God, the only true God, wants to be with us. He wants to know us. He wants us to experience the life and the blessing that comes from his presence. In fact, that's the reason for every single one of our existences, to live in God's presence. Let's explore the story together. We're jumping forward in David's life today. King Saul and his son Jonathan have died tragically. That's how 1 Samuel ends. And in the wake of the king's death, David's household and David's army fight wars against Saul's household and Saul's army. And for a little while, Saul's son, Ishbosheth, was briefly the king. David's the king of the south, Ishbosheth the north. But Ishbosheth is murdered by his own men who betray him. And David, in 2 Samuel 5, is finally anointed king of Israel. Fulfilling the promise God had made to him all those years back when he was a young teenage shepherd. And here in 2 Samuel 6, David is doing what good leaders do. He's consolidating power. He's consolidating power. He's setting up his capital in Jerusalem, the city of David. And one of the first decisions that David makes, and he makes the decision for political reasons, but also, more importantly, for spiritual reasons, is to bring the Ark of the Covenant, to bring it out of retirement, and to place it in Jerusalem. And David does this because David wants Israel to know that God is their real king. God is their real king. And David desires to live in God's presence. That's the theme for today. I want to look at the story in two parts. First, restoring God's presence. And then second, responding. Responding to God's presence. So first, restoring God's presence. Look at verse 1. David gathers this big group of chosen warriors, 30,000 men, a lot of men, to go 12 miles northwest to the border of Israel and recover the Ark of the Covenant, which is in the house of this man named Abinadab in Kiriath-Jerim. Here it's called Baal Judah. And a bit of background is necessary. The Ark of the Covenant uh, was built by Israel 
in the days of Moses, hundreds of years before this story takes place, centuries before David was born. You can read about that in the book of Exodus, Exodus chapter 25. And the Ark of the Covenant was basically a wooden box. It was about the size of a dinner table. It was about three feet deep. And it resided in the tabernacle, which was the traveling temple that Israel would erect when they were wandering in the wilderness and they stopped for a while, the place where God would dwell. And the ark represented for Israel the presence of God. It represented the presence of God with his people. It had, we might say, a sacramental purpose. The ark was a sign and a seal. A sign and a seal of God dwelling with his chosen people, despite their sinfulness and despite his holiness. And fundamentally, the Ark of the Covenant represented three really crucial concepts. So that every time Israel looked at the Ark, they were reminded of these concepts. The first thing it represented was God's reign. God's reign. Look at how it's described in verse 2. The ark of God, we read, which is called by the name of the Lord of hosts who sits enthroned on the cherubim. When people thought about the ark, they were reminded that God is the king. He's the king of the earth. He deserves our allegiance. He rules. Secondly, the ark represented God's revelation. Inside the ark, there were a few really important artifacts from Israel's history, one of which were the tablets of the law on which the Ten Commandments had been written that God had given to Moses on Mount Sinai. And so the ark was a reminder to Israel that God is a speaking God, a revealing God, that he makes himself known to us, that his word is a lamp to our feet. The ark says God reigns. The ark says God reveals. And then thirdly, the ark represented God's mercy, his mercy. The lid, which covered the ark, had two golden angels. Those are called cherubim. Uh, engraved on the top, and the two angels were facing one another, and their wings were covering their eyes, and the lid was called the mercy seat. The mercy seat. And in the Holy of Holies, the inner sanctum of Israel's worshiping life, where the ark was supposed to live, the high priest would come in one time a year on the Day of Atonement, and he would offer a sacrifice, and the blood would trickle down Over the mercy seat, representing the fact that God desires to show mercy to his people, but that forgiveness requires sin being atoned for. Forgiveness requires a sacrifice. That was the point of the entire sacrificial system. So when people thought about and were engaged in worship of God via the ark, they were reminded of these central significant concepts. The ark and all of the Old Testament worship system was like a, I've used this illustration before, it it was like a, you know, one of those children's books that, for example, when we were little, our kids had a little book that you would open and it have all these different animals in the book and the different skin you could touch and it would be fur for the dog and it would be, you know, hard for an elephant, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. It was a pop-up storybook intended to teach children through tactile, visible symbols and signs the truth about the world. That's what this Old Testament sacrificial system, that's what the ark was about. And the ark had been kept in the house of Abinadab. It was on the border of Israel, and it had been kept there for 70 years at this point. 
You can read the story of how it got there, by the way, in 1 Samuel. We don't have time for it today. 1 Samuel 4 through 7, that's another fun story. The ark had been mothballed. The ark had been forgotten all through the reign of Saul, which, of course, is symbolic of what Saul thought of God. Israel had not been living in God's presence. But David, as the new king, wants to change that. David, as we've seen already, is a man after God's heart. And so David, he takes the initiative to restore, to restore the fallen worship of Israel. David wants to show his people that they're not like other nations. And David, it's so important for us to get this, David desperately wanted to know God, to worship God. David wanted, as we see in this chapter, to dwell in God's presence. And the ark is a sign that a holy God would, in fact, dwell with his people. And David wanted to experience the life and the joy of seeing and knowing God and living before God's face. We've seen this all through this series of these Old Testament stories. All of these stories, in one way or another, point us not ultimately to David and his life, but they point us ultimately to David's son's life, to Jesus. And the ark is no different. Think about it with me. God still today wants to be with his people. God wants us in his presence. And just like he did with the ark in the Old Testament, God has today shown us that. He's shown us that he wants us in his presence. He's shown us that he wants to be our God. And he wants us to be his people through the final and full Emmanuel. Jesus, through God with us. Remember I said the ark represented God's reign. But Jesus fully displays God's kingship over the world. The wind and the waves obey him. Demons tremble when he speaks. As he casts them out, they do what he commands. The ark represented God's revelation. But Jesus is the word of God. As Hebrews 1 tells us, in the past, in the Old Testament, God spoke to us in all kinds of ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. The ark represented God's mercy, but Jesus is the final mercy seat. He is both the last offerer and the last offering, who once for all, sacrificed himself, and by the means of his own blood, secured redemption for his people, for us. Jesus is the greater and the final ark, the proof positive that God wants to dwell again with us, that we can live in God's presence, which is the only place where true life, the only place where true joy is found. Do you believe that? Do you believe that? There's an opportunity for you and for me right now, this is what we do in worship, to come into the presence of God through faith in Jesus Christ and to respond. To respond to his revelation of himself in and through his son. How are you responding? That's what the rest of the chapter is about. We see that David restores God's presence and now we see responding Responding to God's presence, the majority of the story gives us really three different responses. 
three different responses to God's presence. Two of them are negative. One of them is positive. And, and the question being asked us is this. Do we take seriously the presence of God? You're in God's presence right now. Do we rejoice in his holiness and mercy? Do we live before him with humility or with pride? Ask yourself these questions as we look at what happens. Let's look at the first response. The first response is Uzzah's response. This is the part where you get mad. Uzzah's response is one of presumption. Put yourself in the scene. This is a massive parade. All kinds of music and dancing, lyres and tambourines. and It's like a Christchurch worship service, basically. <laughs> and uh, Kevin wishes. And everyone is too Presbyterian for that. Everyone is celebrating. <laughs> celebrating and celebrating. The ark is being transported to Jerusalem. And we read repeatedly on, on an ox cart, and it's going down a hill. Uh, and so everybody's having a great party. Everyone's worshiping God. David's leading the parade, but there's a huge divot in the road at the threshing floor of Nacon. We read in verse 6, and, and the oxen take the cart right in the divot, and the cart bumps, and the oxen stumble. And Uzzah, one of the two brothers who's making sure the ark stays okay, reaches out instinctively and grabs the ark to prevent from falling. I was a pallbearer in my father-in-law's funeral a, a number of months ago. And um, as we were at the graveside, we were taking the casket, as pallbearers do, and, and putting the casket on, you know, the little contraption at the burial site that lowers the, the casket into the ground. And the guys that had set this up had not set it up properly. And as soon as we set the casket on the contraption, it went like this. And guess what we all did? Not that. We reached out and grabbed it instinctively. The decorum of the moment, the seriousness of the moment, demanded an instinctive, immediate response to prevent a disaster. That's exactly the picture I want you to have in your mind. Because that's exactly what Uzzah does. And so the parade continues, but people start noticing that Uzzah is laying down on the ground in the road beside the ox cart. He's fallen. And we read why in verse 7. God struck him down there, and he died. What? Why would God do that? This is the problem. This is the exact problem that a lot of people have with the Bible, that some of you may have with the Bible. It seems capricious, and it seems arbitrary. It seems like overkill, to say the least, that God would do this. Uzzah's just trying to make sure the ark doesn't fall over. What is going on here? Again, there's some background needed. Okay, the Lord is really, really clear in his law in earlier parts of the Bible, books like Numbers and Exodus about how the ark is to be handled. And there's three big, huge rules. They're really simple. A child can understand them. No look, no touch, no vehicle. The no vehicle one's weird, but no vehicle. No look, no touch, no vehicle. The only people even allowed to look at the ark are the Levites, who were a special section of Israelites, one of the 12 tribes. And even within the Levites, there's a smaller group, the Kohathites. You can read about this in Numbers 4, Numbers 7, Numbers 10. 
the Kohathites are given the, the job to make sure the ark and all the special things in the Holy of Holies are taken care of. And again and again in the Old Testament it says, if you break this law, the punishment is death. Don't look. Earlier in the Old Testament, and by the way here, the ark's not even covered up. Did you notice that? They're just parading it in plain sight right down the middle of the road, and all of Israel sees it. Earlier in 1 Samuel, the ark is on another ox cart, and it's going into the border of Israel from where the Philistines live, and people see it, and God strikes down 70 people just for looking at the ark. It's a very clear rule in God's law. A second rule, no one can transport the ark on a vehicle. Anytime the ark is to be moved, it is to be carried by the Kohathites by placing two long poles through the four rings that were built on either side of the ox cart. Remember uh, Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, 40 year no, so Raiders of the Lost Ark, 40-year-old movie reference, I know, but they actually kind of get it right. That's kind of what the ark looked like, and it was to be carried on the shoulders by the Kohathites. But here the ark is on a cart pulled by oxen, clear violation. And then lastly, no one can touch. No one can touch the ark. It's clear as day in God's word that if they touch it, they shall surely die. What does Uzzah do? He presumes to touch the ark even though he's well-intentioned. Listen, we have to understand that God doesn't give these really specific instructions attached with these really severe penalties. Because he is arbitrary. He's not doing it because he's arbitrary. God is doing this to teach us warnings. He's giving us warnings. Warnings like these protect us from danger. Just like when we warn our kids, we're trying to protect them from danger. What's the danger? The danger is God's holiness. It's God's holiness. God's holiness is a danger to us because of our pollution in sin, because of the corruption that our rebellion against God causes. God is so pure that he cannot stand sin. He cannot dwell with the unclean. He cannot be in the presence of evil. He is righteous. He is just. He is perfect in all his ways. We are not. We're corrupt. We're fallen. We're defiled. Uzzah thinks it's a greater problem if the ark hits the dirt of the ground than if the ark hits his hand. The dirt of the ground has never offended God. It does its job, obeying God's law. We do not. We are unclean. We are defiled. And God teaches us that our defilement and his holiness are like oil and water. They don't mix on our own. We cannot face God. Don't presume that you can. Do we presume with God? Hmm. Do we sin like Uzzah? And also, I think, like David here. I think we all have an inner disposition to undermine the severity of our sin. We all have an inner disposition to undermine the severity of our rebellion. We don't take our sin nearly as seriously as God does. Which means, by the way, that we don't take his holiness nearly as seriously as he takes it either. The great Enlightenment rationalist and author Voltaire is famous as an atheist 
for saying, God will forgive me. That's his job. God will forgive me. That's his job. I can do whatever I want. That's presumption. If you're here today and you're not a Christian, stop presuming. Stop presuming with God. You should repent. And you should believe the gospel as God offers himself to you in Jesus. If you're here today and you are a Christian, stop presuming. Fight sin. Rely on the Holy Spirit. Do what the Apostle Paul says. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Uzzah's response to God's presence is to presume that his sin isn't as serious as God says and that God's holiness is not as serious as God says either. A hard lesson indeed. Second response is David's. And David's response is one of joyful worship. But notice, not right away. Not right away. Initially, if you look at verse 9, David is terrified. So much so that verse 10 tells us he was not willing to take the ark of the Lord into the city, into Jerusalem. But instead, David took it aside to the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite. I think this is hilarious. I mean, imagine uh, David, (laughs) he's seen Uzzah get killed. Sorry for making light of this, but he shows up at Obed's house He's like, hey, oh, I got a present for you. Look over there. And Obed looks over there and David's gone. You know, he skedaddles. <laughs> See you later, Ark. And so the Ark is left at Obed's house, who, by the way, is a Gentile. He's basically a Philistine. The Gittite is basically saying he's not one of God's chosen people. He's not a part of Israel. But what happens uh, after David gives the gift to Obed and says, I'll be right back. Don't call me. I'll call you. Right. Obed and his whole house, verse 11, are blessed by God because the ark is with him. And someone comes and tells David, hey, David, guess what's happening to Obed? And David's like, oh, there's no way Obed's still alive. And they're like, no, Obed's doing great. His whole household has been blessed. He's had the best crop year ever. And so David goes back for the ark. Now, what's going on here? This is actually the key to the whole story. God is teaching David here. And I think God is teaching David the gospel in Old Testament form. What he's saying to David is this. David, I am holy. I am holy. My holiness is not to be trifled with. Do not presume that you can stand before me on your own. Yes, I judge sin. But, David, I want to dwell with you. That's the whole reason the ark exists. It exists to show God's people repeatedly that God has made a way for him in all of his holiness to be with unholy people like David, like me, and like you. There's a way, God says to David, for you to experience my presence and therefore my blessing. You see, David was thinking only about God's transcendent holiness in the wake of Uzzah's death, understandably so. But now God says, I am also eminently merciful. And I come down, I want to come down to be with you and bless you. And so David listens. He listens to the Lord's lesson. He trusts the Lord and he goes and he retrieves the ark and he brings it into the city in an act of faith. In an act of faith in God's promise that he will dwell with man. And as David does it, look at how he does it. He does it with rejoicing, 
with faithful, exuberant, unadulterated worship. Verse 14, David danced before Yahweh with all his might. Verse 13, he offers sacrifices to God. And notice, they're carrying it on their shoulders this time. And after six steps, not after six feet, the ox cart has gone. He rejoices, verse 15, with all the people. He responds, David. He responds to God's invitation into his presence. He responds to the good news of the gospel with joy. God tells David, basically, I can and I will bridge the gap that exists between my holiness and your corruption. That's what the ark means. You can't do this, David. Don't presume to do it. I will. Remember the mercy seat. Remember what it points to. One day I will send your descendant to offer a final sacrifice to open up the way to me for anyone who believes. From David, the king of Israel, to Obed, the Gittite. One day I will fulfill in Jesus all of my promises to be your God and to make you my people. One day I will take my holy vengeance out, not on you, but on my son, whom I'm sending to you in love. And I will grant you all my goodness and all my steadfast love and all my mercy through Jesus alone. Do you trust me, David? Yes, David trusts him. And he rejoices at this message with exuberant, Faithful, unadulterated praise. God's presence for David is the best thing in the world. You know that because his response is completely uninhibited. For David, this is the greatest news he's ever heard. It consumes him. It enlivens him. Does it do that for you? How does your heart respond to being in God's presence? to hearing about God's love, to acknowledging and believing God's mercy for you in Jesus. When was the last time you were captivated by the gospel? When was the last time the gospel moved you? Amazing love, the old hymn says. How can it be that you, my God, should die for me? Finally, there's the response of Michael. Uzzah's response is one of presumption. David's response is one of joyful worship and response to the gospel. And Michael's response is one of proud detachment. Proud detachment. She's, you notice, in verse 16, watching this spectacle unfold from her window. She's a princess, right? She's Saul's daughter. Notice the author goes out of his way twice to call her the daughter of Saul, who David had married earlier in his life. She's not participated in the parade, interestingly enough, because Michael represents the old kingdom. Michael represents the old era. Michael represents the way of Saul. But now a new kingdom has come. And upon the throne of the new kingdom is a new king. And Michael, you'll see, is, I don't think it's too strong to say, disgusted. She's disgusted when she sees the king dancing. The king dancing with all of his might. She despised him in her heart. Why? Because she's in the line of Saul, not just physically, but spiritually. She evaluates everything based on what man sees. That's the lesson of David's whole life, as we've seen repeatedly. She doesn't evaluate based on what God sees. And to her, David's behavior 
is unbecoming, is unfit for a man of his stature. She makes no bones about it, dripping with sarcasm. Verse 20, how the king of Israel honored himself today. My goodness gracious, David, that dance, you've got to be kidding me, uncovering yourself. By the way, that's an exaggeration. David's not naked. We know that. He's wearing underwear, totally appropriate. Before the eyes of his servants, female servants. Kings do that all the time. As one of the vulgar fellows, a drunk peeing on the side of a building in the street, uncovers himself. That's what you've done, David. That's basically what Michael says. And David says, listen, honey, I wasn't dancing for them. And I wasn't dancing for you. I was dancing for the Lord. And if you think that was embarrassing, you ain't seen nothing yet. That's his basic point. He says, I'm willing to be made nothing. I'm willing to be mocked. I'm willing to be embarrassed because I'm not the true king, Michael. God is. The genuineness of it all, the passion of it all, Micah can't handle it. She can't handle it. It's not buttoned up enough for her. It's not kingly. She is a princess after all. She's self-righteously attached. Is that how you respond to God's presence? Disengaged, disregarding, emotionless, and joyless. Do you watch others enjoy God with detachment, with judgment, with disgust even? This happens in every single church in America every single Sunday. It's happening to some of you right now. You can't devote yourself too fully to God. You can't get too excited for God. You can't give yourself over too much to God. What would people think? You're more balanced. You're more reserved. It seems that one lesson of this story is that those who who really live in God's presence and really experience God's love don't remain detached for long. In fact, what we see is an open-hearted willingness to give up appearance and reputation and anything else for that matter. Why? Because the joy of the Lord is their strength. How do we respond to God's presence? He's present with us right now in this room by the Spirit. Jesus is here. He he invites you into worship. He's invited you into joy. He's invited you into reverent blessedness. He's invited you into life. Don't presume. Don't detach. Bow before his holiness and sing about his mercy. Rejoice with trembling. Let's pray.